to Colossians 2 as we continue in uh, Colossians this evening. Uh, specifically, we'll be in Colossians 2 verse 9 tonight, and so we'll be confining our attention largely to uh, the truth of this one verse, but just for context's sake, let's go ahead and uh, read Colossians 2. Uh, we'll begin in verse 8 and go down through verse 15. Uh, Colossians 2, uh, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, if you were with us last Sunday afternoon, we saw uh, Paul's warning to the Colossians there, getting to the point of an imperative in verse 8. Paul saw these false teachings being foisted upon the church, and so he says to them, see to it. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And now, having given that warning and therefore shown the contrast between this empty deception, this philosophy, this teachings that are based on the traditions of men on the one side versus the teaching which is founded on Christ on the other, now, Paul goes on to show them in what follows, verses 9 through 15, the supremacy of Christ. And so, again, for tonight, we're just in verse 9. For in him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. In him, that is, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form or bodily, simply as the ESV translated it. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation. Plain and simple. And as we, we think about this truth this evening, we'll consider it under, under two main headings. First of all, the fact of the incarnation, and then secondly, the importance, the, the relevance, if you will, of the incarnation. So we want to think about the fact. What is this that we call the incarnation? And then what is the, the practical relevance of it, the importance of it to our lives The incarnation, of course, is this great fact that the eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus born of Mary, the long-promised Christ. And what this means, then, is that now the fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of deity has reference to the, the divine nature, the divine essence of the Son of God. As the second person of the Holy Trinity, are, uh, the, the Son of God received from eternity the divine essence 
from God the Father in his eternal generation. His person as the Son of God is is generated from eternity by the Father as the divine essence is communicated from the Father to the Son. And so we read, for instance, in John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself. So let's, let's, let's think about this. Only God has life in himself. You and I do not have life in ourselves. An animal, a plant, does not have life in themselves. To have life in oneself is a property of the divine nature. And if God the Father is communicating that property of the divine nature from himself to the Son, so that the Son also has life in himself, this means then that the Father is communicating the divine nature to the Son. And this is what we mean when we speak of the eternal generation of the Son of God. This eternal generation means that the Son of God possesses the same divine nature as the Father, but yet is a distinct divine person from the Father. One theologian described this distinction between the persons of the Father and the Son by saying that the Father has this life in himself, not from the Son, but from himself. Whereas the Son has it, not from himself, but from the Father. Or to say it otherwise, the Father is God of himself, not of the Son. The Son is the same God, but from the Father, not from himself. And then, in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth his Son, born of a woman. To think of terms of Galatians 4, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the seed of the woman coming to crush the head of the serpent. It is the fact described by John, John 1.14, the word became flesh. And the way in which this happened was that our Lord took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, beginning at the moment of conception. And the scripture speaks in many places of this fact. We can think of the familiar prophecies of the Old Testament concerning his coming, the virgin who will be with child, and this child is called Emmanuel, God with us. We can think of the prophecy of the child who will be called Mighty God, Isaiah chapter 9. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary was told by Gabriel how she would conceive the Christ, and she was told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And this is what Joseph was told by the angel in Matthew 1, verse 20. The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And thus, the eternal word, the eternal logos, is made flesh. As the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary, enabling her to conceive. In this way, our Lord Jesus derives his human nature from his mother, such that Elizabeth, speaking by the Spirit, can call Mary the mother of my Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verse 43, the New Testament is remarkably clear about the physicality of the incarnation. And this is how Paul can refer to Christ in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, as being born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. The fact of Jesus' true humanity is how John can speak at the beginning of 1 John when he says, what was from the beginning, we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And here Paul says, for in him the fullness of the deity 
dwells bodily. And this points to the, the manner in which the Son of God is incarnate. And I think the, the words of, of Martin Chemnitz are somewhat helpful in this regard when he says, the adverb bodily does not indicate that the deity himself is corporeal or bodily, but it shows that the nature is that place of indwelling in which the whole fullness of the deity abides. That is, the body of Christ or the assumed nature. In other words, the Son of God united to himself this human nature in his one person so that now his deity is united personally to him. And Chemnitz went on and he said, in popular parlance, the term bodily is translated by the term personally. The whole fullness of the deity dwells personally in Christ, not only in such a way that the whole person of the Son is in Christ, but in such a way that it dwells bodily, that is, personally, so that the whole fullness of the deity of the Son, together with the assumed body, that is, the human nature, is one person. That is, that you have within the one person of Christ, the human and the divine natures united. This is the incarnation in which the Son unites to himself the human nature from the very moment at which the Virgin Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Son of God was there uniting to himself that human nature, taking it into his eternal person. The Athanasian Creed expressed this by saying, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by the conversion of the Godhead into man, but by taking of the manhood into God. One not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. And so when we think of Paul's words here, we must not suppose that the divine nature, which is a spiritual nature, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, John 4, we must not suppose that the divine nature becomes bodily in the incarnation, that the divine nature somehow becomes something that it was not before. The divine nature is and was and always remains the same. The divine nature of the Son of God remains what it has been. But what is new in the incarnation is that this eternal person of the Son of God now takes into himself a human nature from the very beginning of his conception. And thus the divine nature is now one, united in the, the divine nature is now united inseparably and forever to the human nature in the one person of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the ancient church history, the 5th century was a very turbulent time in the life of the church in which this doctrine was hotly contested from one side and the other. On the one side, you had a man named Nestorius of Constantinople who uh, seemed, by what he was saying, to divide Christ into two persons, almost as if you had Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, a human person with a human nature on the one side, and also on the other side, the divine logos, a divine person with a divine nature, yet somehow these two persons and two natures are somehow combined into one thing, somehow or another. One of his contemporaries said that Nestorius introduces two persons and with unheard of wickedness, maintains that there are two sons of God, two Christs, one God and the other man. 
One of Nestorius's phrases was, Mary couldn't have given birth to someone older than herself. But that's what the mystery of the incarnation is all about, that the eternal word himself became flesh, that he who is God himself became man. And then on the other side, you had a man named Eutyches. And Eutyches opposed Nestorius, but argued that Christ's human nature in the incarnation was absorbed into his divine nature, leaving him with only one nature in one person. But if we stop and kind of peel back the layers there of what Eutyches was saying, if his theory of the incarnation is pressed to its logical conclusion, then what this would mean ultimately is that that one nature that Jesus now has in the incarnation is, is not really divine, not really human, but it's a third thing. His theory has been compared to the mixing of paint. If you mix blue paint and yellow paint together, you've got green. You don't have blue, you don't have yellow. You have, you have a third thing. And this is, I think, the crux of the problem with uh, well, many problems with Eutychianism, but one of, the, one of the big ones is his refusal to admit that after the incarnation, Christ was of like substance with us, that he was true man, true human, like us. If that's not true, then just throw out of your Bibles those passages in the book of Hebrews about Jesus being a, a sympathetic high priest like us because he knows what it is to be tempted, etc. You can throw those out of your Bible if Eutychianism is true. These are two opposite errors. If Nasorius says there are two persons and two natures, then functionally we have a denial of the incarnation that God truly became man. And if Eutychianism says there is one person with one nature, then we no longer have a Savior who is like us in all things, sin only accepted. He no longer has a true human nature or a truly divine nature, for that matter. We need both in one who can save us. And therefore, the ancient church leaders at uh, what's regarded as the Fourth Ecumenical Council at Chalcedon in 451 expressed their faith in Christ and the Incarnation this way. And they said, We all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead, complete in manhood, truly God, truly man, consisting of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. This is the incarnation. This is the truth of verse 9, that in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So this is the the fact of the incarnation. But now let's think about the the practical import of this. Why? Why why does this matter? Why is the incarnation important and why is it even important that we understand it rightly? 
Well, if we, if we stop and consider it, we need to remember that the incarnation is absolutely critical to the plan of salvation. There is no salvation if our Lord Jesus Christ is not God. There is no salvation if our Lord Jesus Christ is not man. This means there's no salvation without the incarnation of Christ, without the fact of verse 9 that in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And I think we need to kind of keep in mind, if, if we keep in mind, several passages of Scripture concerning the incarnation of Christ and the fruits of the incarnation, this will become clear. That in the incarnation, we find in Romans 8.3, that in the flesh of Christ, God condemned sin. We find in Colossians 1.20 that in the body of his flesh, we are reconciled. We find that we are justified by his blood, Romans 5.9. Christ laid down his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. In order to lay down his life, he had to be a true human. In order for it to be a ransom for us, it had to be a true human life. Romans 4, or Galatians 4, we've already mentioned how that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And then Hebrews 2, we find that he is, is made a partaker of flesh and blood, that it was necessary for him to become in every way like his brothers in order to save them. Hebrews 2, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he also is able to aid those who are being tempted. And here in the, the context of, of the letter of Colossians, Colossians 2, the incarnation is important because it reminds us that in having Jesus Christ, we have him who is fully God. We have him who is the way, the truth, and the life. So why would we abandon Christ for, for anything else in this, in this vein of philosophy and the traditions of men, the elemental things of the world, why, why would you turn aside to that when you have him who is God, who became man for us to save us? Paul described the pre-Christian life of the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 by saying, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you would turn back again to the weak and worthless and elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? And that same truth of Galatians 4 is, is applicable here in, in Colossians 2. Once upon a time, these people were slaves to things that were not God. And now that they've come to know Christ and to become his servants, why would they, why would they turn back and seek to be enslaved to these things all over again? Why would they want to be enslaved to something which is not God. What about you? Why would you want to be enslaved to something that is not God? Romans chapter 6 speaks about that. We, we heard about that this morning as our brother, our brother Stan read for us, that those who sin are, are slaves to sin, in bondage to it. Why would, we, why would we want that? Why would we desire to turn away from the very Son of God, who has loved us 
and has given himself for us only to follow the lies and the false wisdom of the world. And these false teachings and philosophies and so forth may sound good for a moment, but they're siren songs alluring us and so forth. It might delight our flesh or allow us to serve the passing pleasures of sin for a time, but in the long run, it's the way of death. But in having Jesus, we have all that we need. We have him who is the way, the truth, and the life. We have him who gave himself for us for our redemption, who secures our way to God, as we sang this morning. In having Christ, we have the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily in him. We have salvation in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would realize what a a truly great and wonderful thing that it is that Christ became incarnate for us to live and to die and to rise again for us, to be obedient unto you unto the point of death, to live a perfectly holy life under your law. Father, we we pray that you would help us to realize what a treasure we have in him. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would never turn aside to any teaching that is built upon the traditions of men and the vain philosophies of the world and empty deceptions rather than on Christ. Lord, we pray that our lives, our hopes, our beliefs, our actions, everything about us would be founded upon Christ and upon the truth which he has taught us, upon your word which you have given us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.